very fortunate to have this man a phone call away and to be in the same time zone as me. He's been beyond kind to me. Damien M, everybody. And the intro should be longer, but he knows I like him a lot. Um, very good. Uh, thanks very much. And hello, everybody. And Mark, thank you very much for inviting me to share. Um, I'm really looking forward to it because uh, I'm not going to be in a race to get everything said in 10 to 15 minutes. And Mark, it's good to have you in my life. We met during COVID and uh, we have maintained contact and I, cons I consider you a good friend and I um, always enjoy your warmth uh, towards me as well. Um, so my story, my story begins, um, I'm 67 years old now. I started drinking when I was 16. And um, so why did I, I drink? I drank because I was a little gay boy in the West of Ireland and I didn't play sport. So I had very little to connect to me to the boys in my class. So I smoked cigarettes and then I drank. And that was the common denominator. And I, I, I mean, I enjoyed growing up in my in my high school. It was yeah, it was good. It was, it, my town is Tum. It was a good town to grow up in, and I enjoyed my school. I kind of at the time, I suppose, I didn't know I was gay, but so um, it was just that I didn't have enough kind of activities that linked me to my classmates. So, um, so I, I suppose it, to begin with, I drank for acceptance. And it did uh, enable me to be with the group of people we used to, in the West of Ireland, we used to um, go to the pub every Sunday before school the following day. This is in my, say, when I was 17, 18. So that continued. And um, um, I remember the observation of somebody who first saw me drunk, which would have been the second time I drank when I was 16. And they said, oh, there is Damien while I were you know, really drunk. So I remember that time it was cider. So basically my, my drinking continued in the same way. I, I always drank to get drunk. I never, I could never sit down and have one or two or something. If I did, it was, it was hard work. So I always wanted to um, get drunk. And so when I, when I look, when I look back in it from uh, where I am now, I think, um, um, I had, I was, I had dis-ease inside me so that I couldn't figure out. And the easy, when I couldn't figure it out, the easiest thing was to drink. So I did that all the time. So, and um, somebody, um, I, I've attended counselors on a few occasions and one counselor said to me, Damien, do you, do, you, do you think you drank because you were gay? And I said, I don't think so. I think it was just because I was uneasy inside and um, I, and I didn't understand myself. And I have come to understand myself much more by being in AA. I couldn't have, have unraveled the confusion or the disease from those days and a disease which can even can be present sometimes now without a so it's really my um it's really my anchor and um so i believe that gay or straight 
um, whatever, whatever, male or female, I was just um, um, wired to want to drink. And I did for the reasons I've explained. So I drank for 20 years and um, I was a school teacher and I think, you know, so basically there was 13 years of 30 kids. So all of those kids. Now, I wasn't hung over all the time, but like they had to endure, endure my bad temper um, and the dysfunction that came from drinking, you know. It was something that I had a lot of guilt about. And um, I did a, a, my second step four about uh, three years ago. And I did a virtual amends to all of those multiples of students that I taught. I was a primary school teacher. So I remember once, um, so I, I lived I lived in Ireland until um, I think I was 30. And then I moved to London. To live. I lived in Australia and then I lived in, in, um, in London. And it was during that time that I started to kind of see that um, I was drinking too much. Now, I never had a blackout. I never fell down or things like that. But the thing is, I knew it was, um, I felt it was a problem of a kind. And um, I remember once hearing Richard Harris being interviewed. And I don't remember the details, but he was, I think he was talking about controlled drinking. And I tried control drinking for a while. So I used to share a flat with somebody in London and he had a drinks cabinet. So um, I would drink his gin because I felt I didn't want to admit that I had to go out to buy a bottle of gin. So then when his gin was near the bottom, I would go out and buy a bottle of gin and replace the gin. Okay. And then I did things like, say I, I lived in London, my local, um, my local um, underground station was Warwick Crescent. Um, no, Warwick Avenue. It's in the song as well, Warwick Avenue. And I would say, okay, if I can pass the... So that would, would be... I would go to that station to go to a pub. So I used to say, okay, if I can pass the entrance to the station, then I've succeeded in not going to the pub. And something that I actually never did, I, I never really drank at home. Um, I never went out to buy a drink to drink at home unless maybe those people coming in. So, and then I started going down to the off-license to get drink to bring home. And, and I, as I said, I'd never done that except if, if there was visitors coming. But now I was doing that to drink for myself. So I suppose that, that the, um, I was being prodded into the awareness that I really had, there was something wrong. And then uh, three things happened. I think there were three significant events. So so I'm now 36, okay? So we're now 20 years later from my first drink, living in London. And one morning, um, while the children were waiting for me to bring them into the classroom, a young Vietnamese boy, he will never realize how important he was in my life. Now, by the way, I, I'm an atheist. And I really always have been. And I tried in regular way to try to get the God thing. 
but um, but anyway, it was one of the coincidences in my life, and one of the lucky things in my life is that this young boy called Lan, an eleven-year-old boy, said to me, "Sir, not the smell of drink off you again." So, and it's the the again bit is the bit that um, that stuck out for me. So I checked in the school to see did people think that I came that you know I had a drink problem. And they said, I, they used to notice I had the shakes. I used to drink a lot of water. They wondered, was I diabetic? So that was the, um, while I only before that wondered, then I think they, it was, it was quite clear to me then that there was a problem. And I suppose reflecting on that, and then I, I wouldn't drink before, before a work day to kind of keep, but I'd still drink on a Sunday though, for some reason, even though Monday was coming up. And I remember coming into the school in the morning and the secretary in the school was Lily, an Irish woman. And I said to her, I said, you know what, Lily, drink is the most destructive thing in my life. So I was crystal clear about that. I could see it as destructive. It was actually controlling my life. So that was the second significant thing to happen. And the third significant thing to happen was I used to, at the time I'd bought a flat in London, the mortgage was high, my salary wasn't that high. So I didn't have a lot of money and I used to come to Ireland on a boat. I think um, flights were expensive at at that time. And um, I would have five pounds and that would give me enough drink. That would make me happy. I never really get five pints for that. Five pints of Guinness. And this man sat opposite me in the in the in the bar of the boat, and uh, I think I looked like a priest, but he certainly looked like a priest. So, and I thought he was a kind of he was kind of very mild mannered, and it was as if he was kind of about to, you know, tell me some truth or try to convert me to what I don't know. But he said to me he had just finished a twelve day silent meditation course that dealt with craving and aversion, a Buddhist meditation, vipassana or repassing, I don't know which way you say it. And uh, so he said it dealt with craving and aversion. So when I heard craving straight away, I thought, I'm onto something here. Now his craving was um, for sex. And um, so anyway, he gave me the details of the course and we kept him in contact for six months. And I registered six months later to do... um, the meditation course in Hereford in England and so I went to Hereford on the 14th of April 1992 so and I never drank since now I didn't kind of I wasn't I, I don't know whether I had a drink the night before but at that stage as like I wasn't always drinking to get drunk so that was I, I never drank since and and the the um the the philosophy of that, uh, what I learned in that is that um, the more you the more you surrender, and the more powerless you acknowledge yourself to be, the inverse is that you have all the power that you could possibly want. So the struggle of um, of controlling everything, not not absolutely, but it, it's sublimated quite. Uh, uh, quite a lot. Now, I didn't necessarily rationally understand that, but I kind of got a sense of what that was about. 
So in the, you know, so there was 12 days of silence and meditation and, um, and um, one of the things that we learned was that, um, say if you're agitated, so that means I hate, I hate, I hate, which is the um, aversion or I want, I want, I want to come into the middle and to calm the mind. And it was, they, they called it being equanimous. So I like that concept. So if I'm disturbed, um, that I can't always apply it. But if I remember it, then I can apply it, even today. So as to come into the middle. And then the other um, most important thing that I learned on that meditation course um, is that not we there was there were video lectures every night, and whoever the guru was, the thing that I remember is um, that he said the concept of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, I don't have to believe fully in anything um, to stay there. So in other words, if, if there's something that overall I like, I stay there. I, and I don't have to kind of jump up and down saying, why I don't agree with this or why I don't agree with that. And I'd, I'd never have understood that. Like I'd have, you know, my pride would have told me, oh, I don't agree with that. So I can have nothing got to do with that. Okay. So, um, oh yeah. And it also talked about the ego, watching the ego, when the ego is kind of high, bring it down, bring it down, bring it down, watch. Um, and what's, and something that I've learned more recently is to kind of um, not not to always analyze, but to be aware of my motivation for things. Like, am I altruistic or is it the ego dictating what I'm doing? However, so I returned to, uh, so that was the 14th of April. I returned to Ireland in September, then year to live. And I found it really stressful coming back to live in Ireland. And... Um, because being gay wasn't, it was uh, it was against the law to be gay in Ireland at that time. Homosexuality was decriminalized in 1993. I came back to Ireland in 1992. And I also lived in Australia. So having lived in London and Australia in very open societies to come back to um, a country which was, where there was shame around being gay, but it was also illegal. And it was also, I could eventually lose my job because in Ireland, 95% of the schools are um, run by the Catholic Church because they came in to establish education in Ireland. And because of that, they have a whole, they, they own the land, they built the schools with state funding. But then the bishops are the employers of 95% of the teachers in, in Irish schools. And that's just the way historically it, it came about. So I was back living in this environment and it was, um, and coping as best I could. So I went to see a friend of mine one day and he read the preamble to me. And I thought, Jesus, that preamble's great. There was nothing uh, that I struggled with in the preamble. like, And I didn't have to leave aside any part of it. It was just totally acceptable to me. And he had been trying to, and I suppose this is another thing of the, the, another coincidence. He had been trying to bring me into A for 13 years. And um, so that night I went to 
I went to a meeting and um, I remember it was in, it was a meeting. I, my recollection is that they were all in prison or out of prison or, and there seemed to be a very kind of violent thing. And I said, Jesus Christ, well, this is the right sort of, I'm, I'm now got involved with, but he phoned me, it was in the days when you, you landlined, you phoned. And he, I went to another one and in that second meeting, I said, my name is Damien, I'm an alcoholic. And you know what? I decided to kind of give up pretending to be something that I mightn't be. So I said, here, I might as well, I might as well go for this. So I went into a, and um, it was great. I mean, I, I thrive in encouragement and um, like I'm now an elder, but at that time I was young, 36 or 37, 36. And, um, and I thrived with their encouragement, lovely people and gave me numbers. Then about four months after I came in, um, my head got all muddled. So now I understand what that is. Like I put down the drink, but I hadn't kind of dealt with all the confusion that constantly led me to a drink. And that was still there. And I now know that that's what I have unraveled in my time in a, through different parts of a, whether it's the steps, other people, um, steps of people go to meetings and hearing something and and that actually maybe exploring my confusion is like a mirror of my confusion the whole concept of identification so for five months i was out of work i rang my boss that day and i said um, i can't come to work and i basically for five months had a nervous breakdown on my feet now the woman i phoned the AA member that I phoned that morning to say, I'm totally stressed out. She recommended I go to a, there was an alcohol treatment unit close to me, a state funded one. And so I spoke, I went and I met somebody. Now, uh, this, uh, this morning when I, I was thinking back on this and I knew I was going to be speaking here today, I think she was a psychiatrist or else I must have thought she was. So she did the test and I, you know, the ticks, boxes and so it was, um, without a doubt, I was an alcoholic. So that bit was good. Because I think even after the four months in AA, I kind of kept thinking, but am I really an alcoholic, you know? And so I suppose while I was in AA for four months, even though I was saying I was an alcoholic, I wondered if I was. Like somebody said, a friend of mine said to me, but she said, Demi, you weren't an alcoholic. But the thing is that I've been coming to AA for 31 years and I get identification nearly totally in a so for me it was a problem it mightn't look like bad drinking to somebody else but it was bad enough for me and maybe i hadn't hit my my rock bottom uh, i just come to that realization that's the most destructive thing in my life so however that that psychiatrist i believe it was a psychiatrist gave me a letter i don't know who the letter was for i can't remember it must have been from my doctor and I just i i so i decided so she she's a psychiatrist and she's given me a letter but I thought, I believed that my problem wasn't psychiatric, that my problem was more psychological and um, that I didn't understand my life. And because of that, I didn't know how to live my life. And so I kept kind of getting confused and being, I suppose, ill at ease and just yeah, prone to confusion. So I put that letter in my file. I know that about, I don't know, 15 years later, I did open that letter. Now, I don't remember what it was in it even, 
But anyways, I made a decision that day that I'm not going down the psychiatric route. So I asked my doctor, would he recommend? No, I spoke to the, my doctor and he recommended a counsellor. So I went to a counsellor. And in the second session, he told me that he didn't believe in AA. He didn't believe. He didn't believe in AA. So I thought to myself, well, and I did believe in AA. So um, we parted company. Not on that issue in particular, but um, I felt I wasn't making progress with them. It was like kind of being with the enemy, really, when you think about it. And I, I kind of, I had a sense, I may not be, have, be correct, but I kind of felt he didn't really, I didn't think he had the empathy for me as a struggling alcoholic who happened to be gay. So I thought I was kind of in unfriendly territory. So I finished with him. So for those five months, I just did pure A. So I never went to a treatment center. I always, in the early days, I always wished I had been to a treatment center because I thought they'd be able to fast track my understanding of what was wrong with me. And then they'd be able to fast track my recovery. So that never happened. Maybe if I had given that letter to my doctor from the psychiatrist, maybe they would have put me into um, a treatment center. And I have private health insurance. And so, but however, it didn't happen. So I am 100% AA. And I, for those five months, I used to, um, I used to um, go to as many meetings as I could. And in some ways, I was ashamed of that because if you said, told some, well, I felt if I told somebody and going, they, they, you must be very bad if you have to go to all those meetings. Whereas I knew because of going to the meeting that every meeting you go to, there's a chance that you can kind of, that you identify um, and that with something that you can't figure out yourself, somebody's talking about it and they, and then it gets figured out for you in that way. Then another very important person for me during that period was a guy called George in Dublin. And George was, I don't know, maybe George was maybe 10 years older than I was. He had been in the Merchant Navy. And I always remember, I couldn't understand when he was sharing. He used to talk about going down on his knees. And I didn't really understand how people prayed at that. I didn't understand that people did that. And um, But I liked him and I, and I had no attraction to getting down on my knees to pray. But I used to meet, I used to ride a pushback at the time and George did as well. So we'd quite often meet, our paths would cross at the meetings and outside. And George knew how agitated I was and how confused I was at that at that time. And he said to me, Damien, he said, keep sharing whatever is going on for you. And now he may or may not have said, and eventually it'll it'll you'll figure it out or it'll reveal itself to you. So I'm no more than the, the, uh, no more than the 11 year old boy, no more than the man I met on the boat. And George, I think would be the next significant person because he gave me a way of um, operating in A because when I wasn't finding the answers, I wasn't understanding myself quickly enough. I kept remembering what he said. He said, keep sharing it. And congrat I don't remember your name, the, the woman who's a year sober. Congratulations, by the way. And then the next significant thing that happened was when I was a year sober. 
I went to an AA meeting, one that George used to go to as well. And I said, I'm a year sober. And I was, it was great to hit that landmark. And a woman with tremendous kindness said to me, Damien, that's great. And congratulations and well done. But she said, remember, though, just be careful. It's still one day at a time. And I never, I never forget that. Although, strangely enough, when I was 30 years sober, I happened to be at a Tusnua meeting. I don't know whether I told you this bit, Mark. And uh, I, was at, at a, I went away to a hotel for three days to celebrate my 30 years. I'm kind of a, I think I'm odd. I, I spend a lot of time by myself. I'm, I call myself a kind of sociable loner. I went away to this hotel in the west of Ireland, window overlooking the sea and everything. And I remember uh, I was at the meeting with Mark and uh, I was saying I was 30 years sober. And and I said, and I remember this woman said to me when I was a year sober, remember it's one day at a time. And, and I know that I'm 30 years sober, but I know it's one day at a time. Now, something happened the following day, which really frightened me. Now, I don't know whether it was in a dream are really are in reality. But I thought I could take two drinks. So that's after kind of making a speech at the meeting about, you know, understanding that it's one day at a time. And still, I, I, I still don't know whether I actually thought it or whether it was in the dream. But whatever, in that experience, anyways, I thought I could take two drinks. And I said to my, then I think it must have been the following day when I realized that, that I'd had that thought. And I said, Damien, that, that tells me that alcoholism is, it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. How could I, who rationally knows that I can't take a drink, how could, despite all that rational, you know, rationalizing, could I think? And after all these years in it, that I could think I could take two drinks, you know. And I have to say that frightened me. But the good thing about it is, like, I learned from that, okay. So that's not, that wasn't a wasted experience. Can you imagine if I didn't have that and that, and I thought I was kind of safe in the one day at a time philosophy and suddenly that might have, that could sneak up on me at another, at another time. So, yeah, so that, that was very, that was a very valuable uh, experience, you know, and I often tell that as well because, um, I mean, like I have a glass of water in my hand, but like it's it's not hard to drink a pint or it's not hard to have a gin and tonic, dead easy. Um, it's it's harder that if that came up to resist that, you know. And um, so that was the story. So that was. Uh, yeah, so that brings me up to 30 years. So basically, I'm going to, just going to kind of reflect on a um, um, uh, tiny bit of what AA means to me. So I love AA. And I have to say, it was great during COVID to, to discover secular AA. Because, and I'm always grateful to a man I used to hear at a meeting when I was in my early days. He used to say, I'm an atheist. And that really gave me hope. Because at that time, everybody was talking about God. And um, and they interpreted the higher power as being God. And then in Ireland, then most people kind of revert to calling it you know, the God that they had grown up with in their religion. And strangely enough, I think 
Um, I go to regular meetings. I don't go to, there's no, there's only one agnostic meeting here Sundays and um, I, I don't get to it. But um, what's the point I'm making? But even now though in Dublin, it's very tough. I mean, about at least three people in the last six months said to me, I tried A and I couldn't stay there because it was all God. And I said, but can you not just park that bit? Uh, or I said, you know, there's, and I would tell them about two Snua. There are, and worldwide, there are secular AA meetings, you know. So, um, so I remember in my early days in AA, like I wouldn't say I was gay because kind of, I don't know, well, because it was illegal, not because that, I think it was because I felt people would dislike me if they knew I was, and then I'd lose my place in it. I feel I would lose my place in AA. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm an atheist, but I think I need to say it at meetings so that maybe another atheist in the room can say, okay, oh, it is okay. Because generally they only they only hear the other thing. Now I go to regular A because I love the people contact and I'm an alcoholic, okay? Whether I'm atheist or not, to me, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, because like there's enough in A that I find attractive and I love the people contact and like people that I've, you know, known for years. Now, I've never, um, I've never kind of, um, I've never done the coffee shop thing or made kind of lifelong friends in AA, but I have, I know a lot of people. And um, probably my friendship with you, Marcus, probably say, it's probably the most friendship, and maybe Patrick, that, and, um, and yeah, and of course, Annie, but, but I like going to the regular A meeting. So I did. The, I found a man, did the steps. Uh, he was a lovely man, but he drank after twenty-seven years. He had a, a his personal life. There was an issue, a love issue, and he went back drinking. But that was a lesson for me as well. What I learned from that, I learned from that that you can drink after twenty-seven years. And at the same time, and I was twenty-four years sober, I think at that time. I remember somebody else who was around the same time as me he went back drinking for two years and then he came back to a then the last time and he died so what i've learned is that i don't put my trust in one person in a because that one man he drank so it'd be stupid of me to put my trust in one man but i put my trust in a though and i put my trust in the you know the the program of a and um and the way of life and um, I know that A won't let me down and the people that I like in A um, say if I have a problem, I, I can maybe go to any of those or I share it at a meeting. So, yeah, so I've learned that as well, not to, because we're all human. I'm sure I could let somebody down as well. And um, then... One of the, I, I'm a great believer, I, I say the serenity prayer, but I say it without God because I like the sentiment and I really, you know, I can identify with that sentiment. And I say, I do everything without God. I just blank the word God. And, well, I hang on to the philosophy. I hang on to the wisdom. And one of the other things that, um, this is really good to be able to talk like this. I've never kind of talked in such a, um, you know, relaxed way and kind of logic, you know, one thing following the other. Um, 
so um you know i i realized in the last few days that i go to aa because i actually forget a lot of the wisdom that i learned i forget a lot of the tricks or the approaches to my day-to-day life and one in particular i was at a, at a meeting on saturday and um in a group that i like i come in and um waving to everybody and um i'd been away for two weeks and i've been away from me and the welcome i felt and um and my fondness for so many of those people but one guy that i really like his father died recently and i remember i did a, a chair one day and i talked about the gavish you know and he spoke to me afterwards and he said how his dad who i don't know maybe mid-80s uh, he was very open-minded and and always, you know, um, willing to give people who were struggling to give them that dig out, you know. And his father died and it was a few weeks ago. And so I, it was nice to know that I kind of knew a bit of his dad from what he told me. But the other day, uh, Tom, he said in the meeting, he said, and I know this, by the way, but I'd forgotten it, that if you're agitated at a meeting. In other words, people are doing your head in or whatever it is that it reflects back on something that's wrong with you. Now, I know that, okay? But I prefer to be saying you're a... I prefer to be give out about the person who's irritating me than trying to figure out how it makes... why I should be reflecting on something in myself. So, and because it wrecked my head trying to figure out what's wrong with me and why am I getting agitated. So sometimes I just park that as well, okay? And I really, if I find irritation too great in a meeting, I just leave. Because if I can't figure it out, I'm not going to do my head in. I just leave and I can figure that out another time. But on the following day then, holding on, no, having heard what Tom said, before the meeting, this member criticized a friend of mine who's in the fellowship to another person. And I thought to myself, well, fuck you. There's my first curse, uh, Mark. And... um. I said, uh, and I was so angry with that person and I couldn't concentrate at the, at the meeting then after it. And I felt like getting up and making a speech about, you know, taking somebody's good name and all like that. But remembering what Tom said the day before, and this is why it's good to go to meetings because I had forgotten. It wasn't up to me to judge her. But obviously I heard what she said, so it informs me. So I can kind of take note of that and say, oh, that's maybe the way you are. And not judge, but just hear what was said. And then and then at the end of the meeting, I said to myself, um, actually, I didn't enjoy the meeting, but I, out of courtesy, I congratulated some of the points that the main speaker made. And, um, and uh, but I said to myself, okay, I have no right to stand in judgment over that person because I know I shouldn't judge. I know we you can want to judge and we do judge, but kind of I need to watch that part of me, which is saying what's wrong with her. And said to I said to myself, now, Damien, how many times have you taken somebody's good name away? How many times have you criticized somebody? How many times have you whinged endlessly? You know? So... What that did was it helped me to not take somebody else's inventory, but to take my own inventory. So, and, you know, I never knew that 
So, so in the last week, I've come to realize that going to meetings is that I can't remember everything I learned in A, but if I go often enough, it'll kind of stay fresh in my mind. And um, one of the things that I think is important for me is to make the newcomer welcome. I was at a meeting the other day and so an in newcomer introduced themselves and four people shared before me and nobody welcomed that person. And I turned, this is me like being a school teacher, making the point. And I said, you're very welcome. I said, because when I came to AA, people made me welcome. And I thrived in AA because of the welcome I got and because of the affection I got. And I said, I hope you feel that here. Now, I, I wanted her to hear that, but I suppose I, and I could, I think in some ways, I think I could see the people cringe who were so obsessed. Now, it's good. Of course, we're all, I'm obsessed with myself. But you know what? I can be, I can take interest in somebody else as well as being interested in myself. And I think that's kind of good manners. So I am, um, the other thing I do, like Mark does as well, I do service, you know. I do a, I do secretary maybe once or twice um, a year. Um, so I don't get up in the morning. I don't pray. I've never got the prayer and the meditation bit of, uh, of, of in 31 years. I never got that bit. Okay. I could never incorporated into my life um and so when i get up every day i don't say the prayers people go down their knees and all that and so i have no starting to my day and sometimes when i think of it i say okay let's let me surrender to you like i have a plan for the day but let's take on board everything that comes my way as best i can to to um and but i do step 10 every single night and it's very simple i just lie in bed I turn off the light, I turn off the radio, and I just go down through the day. It's very simple. I mean, maybe it needs to be more analytical. Mine isn't. And quite often, by the time I um, even before I get to the end of the day, I'm asleep. So I do, and I do, and I, that's not an effort, by the way. I enjoy doing it. I just can't. It's basically just look back at the day. Not no big analysis or anything like that. One of the um, I'm looking down through my 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 um, my notes here. I've actually oh yeah, one of the things I learned in early uh, the man who took me in said, you know, Damien, be prudent, because I went through a relationship breakup nine years ago, and as far as I know, I didn't share about it in the meetings because while it is anonymous, all you need is one person who doesn't understand or whatever. So I never say at an AA meeting what I'm not pre prepared to hear at the street corner in my local town or where I live. And I mean, that's my choice to do it like that. So like I share prudently, I could be talking about the leg of the chair for all you'd know. Even that time when I was during that breakdown, work was my problem. But I would just talk about something that was giving me an issue or decisions I had to make. And then if I really want to talk about it in particular, I talk to somebody outside the meeting okay and I, and and i i do that but um now see and there's only one last thing that i have to say is um um during during the pandemic um i got a second sponsor and he was believed in god and believed in the you know the traditional thing this is while i was still in the secular but i was became a sponsor to somebody so i said you know I go to him and as I think I could park all his God bit because he's a good man. 
But at that meeting, there was an American woman doing the chair. It was coming from Brussels, the meeting. And she talked about, oh, I, I was talking about a resentment that I couldn't uh, get a handle on. And she told me that to read page five, she read out from page 552. So I finally, during the pandemic, have discovered how to deal with the resentment. And I think for me, for what I recollect from what I read is that you wish that person the, the, the best that you would wish for yourself. And that that person, even though you mightn't like them, they are doing their best. So that probably goes back to not judging that person and to accept that person as they are. You know, the acceptance prayer is when I'm disturbed to come, people, place, or thing, and all that. So that's been invaluable to me because I never knew how to like it. They say, oh, yeah, you get here. Oh, pray for resentment. I didn't know how to do that. How do you pray for, for resentment? But when it said, wish that person well, and they are doing their best. That made it really. And actually, I think two weeks ago, I lost one resentment that I had for uh, since 2007. I finally, I used to try to get rid of it. And I, I think I've got rid of it. And there are other ones that I know I have got rid of. I'd have to see that person to see how that resentment is when I'd see them face to face, you know. But to the best of my knowledge, it's certainly, well, I think it's virtually eliminated. So that's the end of my story.